All right. Life Unraveled, Dr. Sean Huss. Hello. Hey, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, we, no problem. We were Glad talking about here. tons of cool stuff before the podcast, like all podcasts. Sure. We should have recorded that. <laughs> uh, but we were. We were just kind of riffing on uh, junior high clicks and stuff, I guess. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. At least that's what I was riffing on. Uh, so you sociology professor. I am. Uh, Arkansas Tech University. Mm-hmm. How long have you been working at Tech? Uh, I think this is my 14th year. Nice. I think you were maybe, when I went through there, were maybe finishing up grad school or something. Yeah, I came ABD, so uh, I was a lunatic when I first came. I was, you know, screaming at everybody because I had so much going on and finally finished and calmed down, so. Yeah, you know, I will say, uh, at that time, I was like, man, this would have been like 07 or something that I took sociology as a freshman. I made an A. Good. Which I was very proud of. Good. But uh, I really enjoyed that class. Like, I remember we watched that Hurricane Katrina documentary, which mm-hmm. I've watched one time since. And just that class in general, I was I got super interested in sociology. And have <clears throat> luckily, no, I work right across the hall from one at uh, UACCM. And uh-huh. we chat periodically. Uh, Dane Blanchard's his name. And then uh, Jesse Weiss was at U of O, but he just moved off to Nebraska. He's been oh, on the cool. podcast a couple of times, so... But uh, what got in, what got you interested in sociology? Uh, well, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's part of my life story. I, I have a weird life story in general. But uh, I was an accounting marketing major for a long time. And then I uh, got bored with school uh, as an undergrad. I went to Euler, got bored, decided I was going to take a couple of years off and then come back and finish. Uh, so I worked in the corporate world for a while. Uh, in the accounting offices for Southern Pacific. So I was at their corporate headquarters. I wow. uh, wasn't an accountant proper, but I was in charge of stuff. I was in head, uh, in charge of loss and damage freight claims, and so a lot of money counting and things like that. And uh, those experiences, uh, they just weren't fulfilling the way I wanted them to be. Uh, you know, I, I think I'd made the decision for accounting and marketing to be more rational. Obviously, you're always going to have a job. The pay is going to be good. And... Uh, yeah, working with those people, they were fun people, but, you know, it was always the bottom line. And so you never counted people, you know, you never worried about people. It was always the sort of macro kind of monetary decisions. And uh, what I ended up doing was I took classes uh, to fill my nights because, you know, I lived in the Bay Area and spending money in the Bay Area is a problem. But you could get community college classes super cheap. Yeah. So I went to uh, Diablo Valley Community College, and I started taking sociology and anthropology classes just for the fun of it. And it was there and then I said, all right, that's what I want to do. So I kind of uh, dropped out from the private sector for a while. I ended up studying in a Taoist temple, kind of centering myself. And then uh, after that, I went back to Euler and finished in sociology and anthropology. So I got two degrees, and from there I jumped to the University of Tennessee to go to sociology. But it was really more about um, it seemed to fit better. It, it helped me understand the world better, and it fit with my explanations. It, it was just it, it was one of those things. It was more like a calling. You know how when people get called to the ministry or whatever? Yeah, you finally found what that was it. What yeah. it is for you. Yeah. That was it. So I can still count things, but 
That's Don't you teach important. stats? Is I that, do. I teach stats. Well, that's helpful. I guess. Yeah. Like, uh, do is that the norm for for sociology? They teach uh, uh, a lot of a lot of social people have backgrounds in statistics. Mine's a little bit different. And uh, I have more of a stats background than most sociologists have. I can see that. Yeah, uh, sure. but uh, yeah, <clears throat> most social people have to go through the the meat grinder of statistics. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of I think a lot in our department are really what we would call qualitative. So I'm sort of the quant guy, you know, I'm the, the number counter. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, compliment because statistics is, is that out of behavioral science? Most of behavioral sciences departments, but it's a thing that a lot of degrees have to take, right? Accounting and business. Oh degrees. yeah. Yeah. And in different departments will have different stats classes, but it's all essentially the same stat stuff. The differences will be in the examples that you use in class and the data sets you use. So in our classes, uh, we'll use some generic sets, but sometimes they're more oriented towards psych or soch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all the same techniques, yeah, basically. For sure. I remember when I took the class, which I never I never had a class in statistics, but I when I took the class on logic. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> some accounting folks and stuff I talked to, uh, it seems like there might be some crossover concepts there, because I remember taking logic with Bush, and it changed the way. I, I was deep into martial arts at the time, mm-hmm. and I was I would spend like, hours writing my combos out yeah, and like yeah. it, it changed me to this real pattern organizational oriented organize the information in this logical way you know and <clears throat> i've always had kind of a, a, a slight interest in stats what i would like to do uh, i've talked with a couple of folks about this i've been plotting stats from uh ufc mm-hmm. for some time i had the ufc encyclopedia so that allows me to look at I, it only goes through 2011, but mm-hmm. I've been working on for a couple of years and I haven't even got 93 or whatever it is through 2011. But right. you can do every card in mm-hmm. OK, it was Americana. This was a decision. This was a second round TKO via a punch. Yeah. So I'm trying to line up these things. So in theory, I could apply them to my coaching. Yeah. Right. But um it's a very time. I need student workers and stuff, man. That's right. You, you need have those need at the RA community college. Research assistant. Yeah. So you guys got advising coming up? Yeah. University? Yeah. Advising's coming up. We're uh, actually starting it now. Yeah. We, I start tomorrow. Yeah. So it's like my second time to do it. And I was like 19 appointments. I'm just like, all right. Yeah. It's like that, you know? Yeah. Uh, How many advisees do you have out of curiosity? <laughs> For my own selfish, uh, honestly, I, I've never counted. I usually get ballpark thirty. Yeah, you know, somewhere in there. Uh, that uh, seems to be like most. I'm still getting the light load, so I don't know yeah, what to look forward no, you to. Gotta ease into it. Yeah, so they uh, they were like, "Hey, you're not going to advise the first year, but here's nine advisees your second time. You know, and that yeah. was the easing into it. But yeah. it really, I could see um, there were five of the people that I dealt with last semester, so they mm-hmm. were. Just yeah. rollovers, couple of updates, right. and look at the transcript. So, uh, plus, like, uh, I'm kind of got this on my mind because tomorrow's the Tool concert. Oh yeah. So you have you you like Tool at all? Have you listen to I like Tool. I'm not, I'm not a huge Tool fan, but I, I like them. Yeah, I do. There's a funny joke going around right now. Maynard says it at the shows, and there's a meme. It's like, uh, Tool, it, no quarter. If you're younger than 30, we wrote this song. <laughs> Super funny. But they, um, I hope they do something like play No Core. I've seen them play once. And I honestly, it was like three or four years ago. I wasn't impressed at all. I went in. I'm like, man, I've always wanted to see Tool. I was getting more so into their music than any time previously because 
is it real listening to it as a senior in high school when their last album came out mm-hmm. i did i didn't get hardly anything like i didn't even know who carl jung was mm-hmm. and then maynard to, to to find out on the back end how much of his stuff is inspired by jung's writings yeah, and the Jungian architect architect yeah. yeah fascinating super fascinating but uh that seems to be what's setting the internet on fire right now. It's the new Tool album. Yeah, yeah. Stereotypically, I, I hear it's good. I, I haven't listened to it yet. But. All of the songs are like thirteen minutes plus, or something oh, wow. like that. There's not a song on there that's uh, less than ten minutes that has yeah. lyrics. Now, Danny Carey did some weird, almost like intermissions. You have like two songs. It's like mm-hmm. half an hour, <laughs> and then he'll do this weird drum intermission solo thing mm-hmm. with uh there's one where it's real digital hmm. it's like brown on and he'll do and it, the, the electronic part just compounds and starts taking some weird right there's a it's like trying to um i was driving down the road listening to one of the songs the other day and i was trying to wrap my head around it and i couldn't mm-hmm. i was just like trying to chase down a beat to follow and I, they kept changing the tempo and i was like man this is this is interesting i mean how they they do the timing signatures and stuff so it's, it's uh sounds like they're going even more experimental i mean oh yeah, yeah. i'll have to listen to it yeah it's um it's interesting we i have in the podcast we just did an album review on the pod we just listened to it on the podcast yeah yeah so uh it's always a it's a good time but man i got interested in having you on because we were actually you know you come to the this in the gym audience quite frequently yeah, yeah, and yeah. uh you know we've established that uh you like awesome music I do. Uh, what what uh are you going that todd you listen to todd snyder at all are you going to that show coming up no, did we talk no, about that yeah no, i don't think we've you may have mentioned todd snyder, uh, see i wasn't into him forever but he's related to like virtually everyone else that you and i have talked about uh-huh. um Played with, I just saw Panic at the Ryman yeah, in Nashville Panic. a few weeks ago. He set in with them one night. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, played an old Mikey Hauser song that mm-hmm. Hauser wrote about his son before he died. How Mikey Hauser, first Panic guitar player, and died. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but man, he's he's like a folk guy, but he's coming to Fort Smith. I've been around since like in high school, mm-hmm. and I never got into him, but uh, he's, a, he's an interesting cat. He was in that band Hardworking Americans, too. That sounds familiar. Now they're they're more electric. He just yeah. plays an acoustic guitar and a harmonic. He's kind of like a train hopping Bob Dylan that's persona cool too. I mean, it, it seems like some of that's kind of making a comeback lately too. The, the, with the uh, the stripped down sounds, mm-hmm. I, I really like that. What uh, what's some stuff you like uh, like listening to? Uh, well, it, it depends. Uh, you know, if I'm working or doing <clears> stats, <throat> usually it's punk. You know, right loud, that loud thrashing sort of stuff. Uh, uh, yesterday afternoon, we were singing around out back, and I, I made uh, everybody listen to uh, Gordon Lightfoot all day. So, you know, just sitting around out back. So it really depends on what, you know, what the mood strikes. Yeah. Uh, my tastes are really eclectic, and I think it's part, like we were talking about my band background. Mm-hmm. There's not really one genre that I like better than all of, all all the others. I just kind of, I, in general, if I it catches my attention, then you know I, I listen to it. So I'll listen to rap, hip hop, you know, I listen to everything. Yeah, yeah. 
I, that, I'm, I'm kind of the same way. I was listening to Tom Morello talk the other yeah. day, which is such an interesting guy. Oh, Harvard yeah. graduate. Oh, yeah. Went to, uh, ironically, I just found this out, graduated the same high school with Tool's guitar player. Really? And they lived together after high school. Yeah. When Tom Morello was a Harvard graduate and couldn't get a job. Mm-hmm. But he, he was talking about, like, he's like, yeah, man, like, one of my number one insp- inspirations, like, Dr. Dre. Yeah. And I was like, I could see that. I mean, I could too, but just hearing him say it, he's got, uh, he's been doing a lot of like, uh, this is uh, something I've uh, even participated in. Like online learning for music is That's pretty so cool. much more. I've been, te- I've never got into playing leads or scales outside mm-hmm. of just some that I had acquired through playing the bass. But when mm-hmm. I played rhythm guitar for years, played guitar since mm-hmm. junior high, and have as an adult started to teach myself scales, and I'm like, here, I dream about the logical patterns. They're just, right. yeah, it's, the, it's interesting. So. Two, three, one, two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm the like, then I'm going to go to that second chord in the key. Pentatonic and then the, yeah. Yeah. The minor, yeah. See, I've been working, I've been working my way just through the uh, major scale, starting with the key of uh, G, and mm-hmm. I'm going to go to the minors. So, yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, I've learned a lot, and it's, it's interesting how, it's changed my playing in all these subtle ways because hey, I'll pick up a guitar or something, I'll play something, I'm like, oh, I've never played that before. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how much of the connection is to like, oh, I learned a new song last week or I picked up these new scales, I thought about these chords in order and then I mm-hmm. played them in a different formation. Yeah. I, the, the patterns are what keeps me engaged on it though. Well, and that's, a, you know, when I was learning them, one of the things that struck me, at least on the... Uh, on the guitar was the mixolydian uh which is the grateful dead scale we always called it and so once you get into that you start to see it and that's where i started seeing the connection between the major and even the minor and some of these others uh, uh just in the pattern itself and just and like you say it's the patterns uh so for instance if i'm playing and goofing around on guitar with some buddies and it's my turn to take the lead i'm less focused on what the notes are than the patterns that i know that will work in that key i just turned that corner in recent months Mm -hmm. and really man what allowed me to do that was getting it uh well on my own without having to jam with other folks so much Mm -hmm. was getting a decent looper pedal yeah yeah i was like oh i am the rhythm guitar player so i would just lay down something simple and then i would pick the scale that would work and mm-hmm. the the shapes and patterns and different shapes as you move down that's kind of there's something that i've cued in a bunch of people are talking about it and i thought this one guy had like come up with it that i watch on youtube all the time named marty schwartz mm-hmm. but there's apparently this system the caged system where um that's like an acronym it's for the c-a-g but uh it allows you to kind of really encompass everything up and down the net just Mm -hmm. ascending descending and Mm -hmm. i just started looking at that like a few days ago i kept hearing about it but uh you uh are you a dead fan off and on yeah yeah i mean uh uh when i was younger i was a huge fan I, i still like their music and occasionally i'll still put it on but um, my go-tos are a little bit different now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I went and saw them live a few times. Oh, wow. All kinds of things. When Jerry was still alive? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, wow. Once when he yeah. was alive. Uh, what are your thoughts on, man, I love O'Teal. 
Burbridge, uh, who plays with Bob Weir and uh, Dead and Company. But what are your thoughts on that? I know it's a pretty controversial uh, In terms act. of what, Dead and Company? Dead and Company having John Mayer in the band. Let's just come out and say it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get what they're doing. You know, I, I, I think they're, you know, in many respects, it's a lot of fan service to continue it. It's, it's an effort to keep that culture alive. And that culture was very important, even historically, in this country for a while. Uh, at the same time, uh, that's kind of where I stopped. I mean, you know, it's it's. Uh, I did go see Bob Weir in the Breakout Band, so I've seen like Mickey Hart and Planet Drum, Bob Weir, the Jerry Garcia Band. After he died, I still saw some of those acts, but uh, I don't know. Just never had the same magic. Rat Dog was close. That's Bob Weir's first band, I think, that he spun out on. But yeah, you know, uh, continuing. I've listened to them. They're okay. But that's about where I leave. They do. I was listening to. I was just listening to a live show they play. I don't even remember where it was. Just mm. on YouTube, sitting back here, researching and just hanging out. And uh, I mean, they get down. I yeah, mean, it's. I mean, and it is a lot. It's a lot of the the set list. It's mm-hmm. the nostalgia, and but yeah. but they jam too, and it's. It's hard not to lie. I definitely appreciate him. I've never been a big John Mayer fan. Uh, but, Me neither. Honestly, uh, I mean, but. Honestly, just because I'm not a fan of his music, the dude is super talented. Oh, you know, there are a lot like Justin Timberlake. I think he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. Don't listen to his music, really, but he's he's brilliant. You know? He's even a great. I mean, that guy does everything. Oh, I know. I Singing, know. Uh, dancing, acting. He's a great actor. Yeah, and so you know, I, I think we can appreciate the quality of somebody's performance or whatever without actually being fans i mean so and that's kind of where i am now just going back to the original question that's probably where i am i mean would i find it nostalgic to listen to terrapin station sure but at the same time it's kind of like eh, yeah you know there's something else missing yeah it's like uh there's i'm in these a couple of the panic groups on on uh, the internet and yeah <clears throat> people will uh, it, uh, this big post went out the other day with somebody being like oh you think you're, you think you're cool because you're 30 and you listen to the dead now it's the most tired thing ever <laughs> well, I just went on this huge rant about yeah. how like it the, like because I mean I got like a pair of Grateful Dead Chacos yeah. like that's the full circle it's gone and this right. person's like seen the whole thing seen Jerry live and they're like yeah you cute you guy with the, the Grateful Dead Chacos I mean I've yeah. seen Panic like 25 times and the the panic fans are like, oh, it's, it's very sweet and innocent of you to go see him that many times. Seen him three hundred. Like one time, somebody, this guy we just hung out with at the show is like, "This is my like three hundred nineteenth show, man." I was like, "Yeah, that's no, on I, another I, level." I have a buddy. I did, I did with panic in particular. He used to follow panic around and then cook the grilled cheese in the parking lot and everything. I'd, I would go occasionally with him to go see Panic. I always liked him. Uh, but uh, this guy, it's a religion to him. Uh, yeah, he, the some of them are the, on. He, he's, he's plugged in with the dead and the recording groups, so he gets all these shows from way, way back. You know, I mean, he just he trades shows, does all kinds of wild stuff. And for him, I mean, that's his primary life. His job is just a side gig, you know, <laughs> just yeah. to pay the bills. Yeah, I could I could see that. Man, this has become a huge thing. I guess it kind of always has been, but um tapers. Mm-hmm. People will get like a a nice task cam, mm-hmm. get 60 foot from the stage, put it up on a boom, yep. and then they will either sell trade or upload or have a negotiate get a free ticket to tape for yeah. 
And yeah, the, a lot of times the bands are doing that, but there's these apps that have come out, like the Relisten app. Mm-hmm. This app I have on my phone, it has like every fish, panic, tra- this you name it, jam bands mostly. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's not a lot of stuff on there that uh, outside of that sort of genre. Mm-hmm. But man, I can listen to every panic show I've ever been to, yeah. and we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like reliving it and like, man, I was there. I remember for a long time, I was like, man, the digital age is kind of a super negative thing. And I remember like being like realizing that I could listen to all the shows I'd ever been to from this mm-hmm. band I really care about. And I was like, no, that's a definite benefit. Yeah, it is. But uh, it, it is. Uh, it's <clears throat> it's kind of hard to find the benefits sometimes with all the. Yeah, yeah, I mean, social it gets, media it's and commercialized. It's 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 sometimes the fan service gets a little too uh, uh, commercial at the same time. I mean, I'm trying not to be too negative, but because too many people are negative about it. I think it's just uh, it's the way our society is changing. And uh, I think there are positive things like you're talking about with this availability of these recordings. So, for instance, uh, I was at Big Cypress for fish the the 2k yeah. turnover and uh, I, I i occasionally i'd get on and listen to that you know just to go all the way back to that momentous occasion where i was in a hot air balloon above the concert right as the new year hit you know wow. <laughs> i mean it was you know it, 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 it's it's something that helps you remember and try to experience those things again yeah it's uh it's a just a sort of a weird nostalgia i guess you yeah, could yeah. say for but uh, it totally unavailable before this time period. Yeah, that I we mean, know it was about. Almost, I was surprised when I saw that show on there. I said, "I'm going to listen to this." Not on that app, but you know, I've got yeah. elsewhere. Well, I mean, just YouTube. I mean, mm-hmm. in general, uh, like there are a few songs like when Panic came through Arkansas that their their videographer Andy Tanell is his name. Mm-hmm. He uploaded some high quality videos from the amp from Walmart amp, mm-hmm. and they're on Panic's official channel, mm-hmm. and they'll be there probably forever. You know, the whole mm-hmm. time channel's up, so yeah. go back and watch his high quality video too, HD and audio's awesome and professionally shot and edited. So that too, mm-hmm. I mean, YouTube is a game changer. Oh, it is. I um, I mean, I listen to podcasts, but to my little commute to Moralton, it was like mm-hmm. 25 minutes. Uh, but man, I watch or listen to YouTube documentaries in the background all the time mm-hmm. or audio books. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of audio books are on YouTube as well. So mm-hmm. it's a, uh, it's a nice feature. We do a lot of uh, YouTubing for the gym. So I'm on there all the time. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to check that out too. Um, <clears throat> so, what uh, I mean, do you have any commentary on any social political issues as a as a sociologist? That no, uh, it, it depends on the issue. I mean, uh, there there be points where you can't shut me up. Okay, <laughs> well, uh, here's here's one I, I was thinking about today. Two of my friends posted about it, and I was mm-hmm. like, well, it's, it's interesting. Maybe I'll a- ask us about it, ironically, since it's a social sort of issue. But public education. Mm-hmm. Uh, public schools and uh, lunches, lunch shaming, mm-hmm. free or reduced lunches, you're paying, you're not paying, your parents make too much, all these sort of rules. And I just never really thought about it recently, but what are your thoughts on us even charging oh, I think for it's, lunch? I think it's ridiculous. I think it should be part of the uh, 
you know the free program yeah i think it reflects part of the reason they do that i assume i haven't obviously looked into it but i know they have food service providers which means they're outsourcing the contracts to private industry yes okay Uh, that along with charter schools and some of these other things i think reflect a tendency in our culture to push more toward the private sector for solutions because they feel the public sector doesn't provide solutions it only provides problems and it's costly um but that is so different than the way we used to think uh uh you know it used to be that we really had faith in our institutions or more faith people are always critical and at the same time we understood that there are things that are public goods that should be sacrosanct they should be treated as public goods and the problem when you take a public good and you put it under the accountability of a, a corporate entity is you take a system where you can participate and have input and you turn it over to an unaccountable tyranny. So now if you're looking at a food service or in a school, uh, there's very little that you can do to try to reduce those costs or do those things. I mean, they, they're, they're susceptible to public pressure, obviously. But they're part of the problem. I mean, that's the issue. Well, and I've seen what got just thinking back. uh, This has been going around, but some communities have started uh, like like we have the Main Street Mission or the different different nonprofits here locally. But Mm -hmm. have started donating because I mean, on top of this, the waste that was the second. Oh yeah, that's a yeah, it's insane. We uh, you know, I was part of the group that started the food recovery programs at tech and uh we were plugged into all the networks and and uh i can tell you that uh uh we were collecting thousands of pounds per week that was just going to be thrown away that we were redistributing to main street mission mana house st john's pantry uh a lot of stuff we were sending over river valley food for kids as long as Mm -hmm. we canned goods etc um, that was a student-led initiative that you know we had 300 students involved and wow is that uh, still going on all that well what, what ended up happening was uh without sounding too controversial that they, they started changing things about how civic engagement would occur at tech and they quite honestly they didn't come and talk to us and when they made those changes it made our program sort of it, it undermined our program. And so what we decided to do, and I, when I say our, it was James Stobaugh and I kind of helped the students do this. So what we decided to do was to step aside and institutionalize it, to give it to a program at yeah. the university. Uh, and so honors program took it over, and okay. we gave them all the resources we could do, and we still help them out now and again. But uh, uh, they just lost the energy and drive. And so the food recovery program shut down. Uh, but we also started the campus pantry, and so the campus pantry is still running. We have one of those as well, and I didn't realize how much it got accessed. Oh yeah, no, that's uh, uh, we, we're a meager eighteen hundred students or something. I mean, were you guys at fifteen thousand yet? Uh, not. I, don't, I think I think we're still at twelve, thirteen thousand. Okay, I remember it was around ten when I graduated yeah. with my bachelor's or master's, was just a year or so apart. So, but it, well, the, you know, the problems of students now are different than the problems of students in the past. So, for instance, if you're talking about uh, economic insecurity and food insecurity, I mean, these students come in and they have very real needs that, uh, that you know, that's different. There used to be, 
I can put it this way. There used to be this sort of cultural nugget that would float around that, yeah, you're supposed to be poor while you're a college student. And it, it's that story is no longer the same story, you know, so it's no longer character building. It's really demoralizing and it's real serious economic and food insecurity. And so when people pass it off, we even testified before the state legislature about this and they pass it off as sort of, oh, well, everybody's right supposed to passage. be poor in it. We're saying, no, you don't understand what this is. Part of what sparked the pantry idea um, more so than the food recovery, was the fact that we had students in classes who would disclose that they weren't able to get a meal and uh, that we had students who were living in their cars. And, That's and, something and, I've seen I, Vice documentaries about. Yeah, I mean, I, I teach a class on stratification and part of what I try to do in the class is I try to get them not to engage in poverty tourism, which is those a lot of programs you see on campuses like they come in they say come experience poverty and it's a canned program that student services will often buy they'll come in and they're sort of offensive because it creates this ethos of poverty tourism where you're not really poor let's go see how the real mm. bad sort of experiences are and and and, and they don't really learn anything and and uh, mostly because they're already there and even worse off so that you know even the way administrations work sometimes is they still operate like college students have money and they don't but uh we were just having a conversation i'm teaching strat this semester as well and they're still ashamed of things like for instance their student loan debt and uh, uh, so just getting students to talk about their student loan debt is like pulling teeth. But once you get them talking, they start to realize they all have student loan debt. And one of them talks about how she works with food services because she gets a free meal a day. And uh, somebody else comes on and says, that, hey, that's why I work at this place. And you start to realize that the students now are really, if we were honest about it, are really poor. And... So when we saw that, we said that the pantry may act as a stopgap to some of this. So the pantry's open; you can go anytime. They don't ask your name; they just have to, you just have to have an active ID. Yeah, and they'll. Does this faculty donate to that pantry? Is it local? Faculty donate. We uh, also help Jan Jenkins. Is yeah, I almost I almost ask if uh, Dr. Jenkins is still around the yeah. honors program. She runs it now, but uh, we were able to help her get that ten thousand pound donation from Tyson. Okay. So, like I said, we're still sort of loosely involved. But uh, going back to the issue, I mean, that's the issue, and that's really sort of the tragedy that uh, th that we see is that they become ashamed, and they personalize the problem when it's actually a public issue. And there's a tendency in our culture to, to make people feel ashamed that they are in just bad circumstances when, in many respects, they may not have done anything wrong. That's uh, It's funny you say all this, because when I was thinking about this earlier— in my head, I was like, yeah, it's so wrong in high school. I mean, I could see it in college because, you know, you're supposed to you're supposed to be. I, like, I yeah. literally thought that yeah. today before we had this conversation. I was like, yeah. well, I could see it in college, cafeteria, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. You got to pay for college. So <clears throat> cost of living goes up. But it's like, at what point are wages increasing to uh, to help deal with that? I mean, I'm, I remember well, when. Wages aren't keeping up. It, I mean, it, it, you know. If I'd known, I'd have brought you all these charts. I mean, it's clear wages are not keeping up with yes. productivity. Do you, are you, I want to have uh, Kristen Foster on the podcast. Yeah, She's yeah, got I mean, a Kristen, lot of great yeah. stats on a lot of stuff we're chatting about. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, 
Nathan George has been on once before, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I don't know if I can get both of them on at the same time. I would like to though, and that, and I just don't have enough ladies on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I need to have, I need to stop doing dudes and just do like <laughs> right. a whole month of women. Well, I'm trying to get Daniel Hausnick on talk about yeah, there's some the stuff. Women's month coming up, right? So you yeah, can just do it. Then. I could do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A little gimmick, but uh, a needed one. So a right. little diversity <laughs> on the on the conversating. <clears throat> uh, yeah, man, that's. Um, we're so on the political debate on mm-hmm. this. What, are, are there uh, political fixes to? I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders would say we need to we need to do away with this student debt. We need to mm-hmm. do away with. So that's on one end of the spectrum is using democratic socialism to combat the problem, and the other, uh, I guess, end of the spectrum would be there is no problem. Mm-hmm. What's somewhere in the middle of that? Well, I think in the middle, if you look at some of the proposals, like um, the, Elizabeth Warren's is is okay. I'm not sure exactly how everything gets paid for yet, but uh, I, I think it's difficult in our society and in our system, which defends to its death the capitalist model, that solutions in Bernie Sanders' approach, you know, which is, you know, we're, we're just going to absorb this. Um you have to build in some of the uh, uh, some of the capitalist model, and that's how, that's where Elizabeth Warren sort of falls in. So, at least what I've seen of her plan, it's absolve upwards of fifty thousand of in debt. Uh, another guy comes along and says that you should provide tax credits for those who have already paid off their loans. Uh, so yeah, I, that, I, I don't that, think we have a plan perfectly in the middle yet, but at least they're having the conversation. And I think they're right. I mean, student loans, uh, a lot of the studies that I've been reading lately indicate that student loans cause people to delay having children, uh, to uh, uh, actually not buy homes, not buy cars, not engage in the typical sort of practices that keep our economy running. Because money is supposed to be spent. Uh, but when you have these bottlenecks and you have this sort of uh, uh, top-down approach, this trickle-down approach, money gets sort of sucked up to the top. And the people who would spend more don't have it. And we've got an entire set of cohorts who have come out with so much student loan debt that they just don't do what others have done in the past that drove the economy. So it's, it's, it, we're, we're getting to a crisis moment, I think. Uh, without, uh, did you have to go? Did you have to take out student loans? Oh yeah, no. I'm. I'm I. I usually tell my students they're rookies. I've got a hundred and ten thousand in student loans. Okay, I think I was at about. I was over fifty, yeah. uh, and then by the time the interest added up, by the time I was able to have enough income to start substantially throwing mm-hmm. money back at them, we've paid one off since I've been working at the university. But I mean, like what you just said, Cor and I that's the reason we haven't had i mean we we had a a, a plan all right we're going to sure, yeah. wait to get married mm-hmm. and, and why we're waiting is so we're not financially destitute and right. then we're going to wait until uh this and they, our education and i get my master's degree and career and everything it's like having a kid is at the very last that's where we're at yeah well that i mean some people choose not to even get married so uh for instance in Let's say my age range, you know, I'm divorced, but, you know, getting married again becomes an issue only because of the student loans. Mm. 
because so for instance my girlfriend has student loans i have student loans and if we get married that changes our income and the way the rules work our payments automatically go up yeah uh because they count two incomes unless we file income separately so we can file income taxes independently from one another right Mm -hmm. and when you do that you take a hit on your return you take a hit on all these other factors so the the system is ultimately set up to kind of screw people over who have student loans and student loans can't be absolved through bankruptcy i mean you, you know you've got them until you die is that is that on the table for discussion about the bankruptcy i've been hearing a little would. i've been hearing more talk about it just mm. in the uh, i guess it's probably going to be more uh, more of an issue in the election everybody's kind of talking about student loan debt but I, I i don't know that they could because it would require so many people to declare bankruptcy i mean so for instance if they were uh if we could absolve them through bankruptcy then i could easily go down and argue that i am so underwater that i am bankrupt i mean i could uh so between that and my house note you know i've got you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt and even though i'm a full professor i'm not making anywhere close to be able to afford that so i'm on like income-based repayment uh that's what we did for a minute and my interest was yeah, no they don't stop ticking the interest yeah uh, I, at one point, I even defaulted. I mean, here's the other thing that that, and I try to tell my students this: that um, when I got out of graduate school, the pay here was so low that I could not pay my rent and pay my student loan payments, and so I had to choose which one am I going to default on. And so I default because you got you, it's like there's an old saying: rent eats first. I had to pay my rent. I had to pay my living expenses. You know, like I know somebody else that has that same story. I mean, probably close to close to the same age as you and everything. And man, I mean, things happen. Things happen. Uh, Spouse loses a job. Uh, I was reading a study the other day talking about people that were homeless that were not losers or anything. Even like it's like. Yeah, you know, I had a good paying job, and then um, I broke my leg, and it's a total fluke accident, and then I got fired from my job three months later, and Mm -hmm. because I had to miss all this work, and they had to let me go, and Mm -hmm. yada, 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 and uh, end of story, they're homeless, and it... They couldn't really do anything. Family members dying, and just not having anyone to mm-hmm. kind of help you back. Well, it, you know, there, there, there are these other things that that uh, there's an entire industry that's set up on preying on people who are economically vulnerable too. So you got the rent centers, the uh, mm-hmm. you know check cashing places, those kinds of things that ultimately uh, you end up paying three times the value of a thing by renting it at a smaller price over the course of the three-year period uh i I mean all these things are are sort of designed to screw you over but at the same time they still need things if you look at this area for instance one of the things i've always argued with the uh, civic leaders is that we need a bus line that if they want to deal adequately with some of the issues that the poor face you need a bus line uh mostly because in this area you have to drive to get to your work there's no bus line there's nothing that kind of no public system that kind of gets you there so for instance we ran into one couple and they came to us for help and we had to direct them to other services because tech pantry was just for tech people but they um they had legitimate work they had all these things and they got talked into buying a truck 
that was beyond mm-hmm. their level, but they always figured, well, we'll have our jobs and we'll be able to afford it. You know, we'll just live tight for a while. Uh, and what ended up happening was they lost everything because the, the husband lost his job. And so they couldn't afford anything. And so uh, they ended up living in the truck. And so you'd see them pull up to pantries in this, you know, $60,000 truck. And people would say, how dare they? I can't believe them. They have a nice car. You know, that car costs more than mine. And without understanding their actual story, and that is they got, they got rooked. They got rooked into spending beyond their means, and that's what I meant earlier about the capitalist model and sort of the mm-hmm. problems with it. There are problematic features of our system that we never address, and well, that's one of them, that there are these wants and there are these desires that are sort of culturally imposed upon us, and as long as we believe we can be economically secure, we make what appear to be rational choices, but things happen, and we don't plan for that. And that's where that family was and several families we've dealt with. They just found themselves in a bad place, but it looks bad when they pull up in the fancy truck. Yeah, that's, uh, I worked in the car business. I could totally, uh, mm-hmm. I could totally see that. I mean, and if I didn't know how to take caution in buying a new vehicle, like yeah. when I bought that Subaru, what's well, been like 18 months ago or something, mm-hmm. but that luckily i knew the owner of the dealership and all these other things and was just like we got a good deal out the gate but like trading everything in financing having done all that but i mean how many people not i obviously i'm I'm gonna tell you not that many people do that's why i got out of work in the car business because Mm -hmm. i felt bad for the for the people like you're, you're talking about yeah Sales manager don't care. Rip their heads off. No, because that's how they make their money. Well, and two, it's, it puts you in a weird spot in sales. Uh, it's the salesperson because I felt bad about that a lot of times because my model was like, you guys pay me $200 a car. I'm going to sell like 18 cars this month. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a decent amount of income. I'm happy with that. I'm going to go for volume. But it would just like put me in the spot where like the customer's like, man, I can't afford that. Like mm-hmm. that's going to make me economically destitute. And then I go tell that to sales manager. He's like, do you want to make money or not? You know, you need to go in there and rip their head off. And I'm just like, it, it puts you, it's a weird moral conflict, but it's like, that's the design of that business. Yeah. And I, I would say that it's not even really a moral conflict because the morality is more in line with what you're talking about. And that is do the right thing, which is help them out. But uh, we, we have this tendency and this is it's it's almost like an infection it infects other aspects of our life when we think in terms of this rational market system and so the rational market system is well you made the choice you have to live with the consequences it's not my job to help you make your financial decisions so put differently yeah screw them over if you can because that's how you get yours it's a very selfish orientation and it's not uncommon that you see that in uh, all sorts of corporate entities i mean it's probably part of what drove me out when i was working in the corporate world and you know that that sort of you know we don't we tend to think markets operate on a kind of morality but they don't markets are amoral they are and so it's really just about how do you maximize your own profit at the, and externalize the cost onto others? So if you do that, you get bang for your buck coming and going. So if I can get you to spend beyond your means, and then I get credit for the sale and I get paid, then 
that's where my belief system is going to worry at me. And so that that's not necessarily a moral thing as much as it is a tendency for us to step outside of our morality, if that makes sense. No, it does. It, that's why I think I was conflicted with it. I mean, yeah, it just... I was glad I got out in the 09 recession mm-hmm. and went back. That would have been when I, no, I, I took it. So this is, I love telling my students this, but I've dropped out of college three times. Yeah. That was between taking your class, which in like 06 or 07. And then I went back in 09, started working the history department, mm-hmm. got my, got my graduate, or got into graduate school, went, got my master's degree. But man, it was, uh, a lot of uncertain times and then that recession hit and like nobody came on the car lot for like 40 days yeah well that's that's uh, well that alone is just an interesting story and greed and some of the stuff we're talking about because if you look at it they knew what was going to happen in advance so uh, uh the banks in particular actually saw this coming down the road and what they did was they hedged themselves to protect themselves uh, but what they didn't do is they didn't adequately let the American public know. So by the time you're talking about 2009, 2008, 2009, that's sort of in the middle of the collapse. So you had this cascading failure, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, et cetera. What it did was that, and not a lot of people talk about this, is like even the money markets just fell apart, right? They broke the buck, meaning the safest investments you could have. You invest a dollar now, 10 years later, you get like a buck 25, right? I mean, you know, just super safe, steady investments. At that time, if you invested a dollar, you're getting 80 cents back. So, so. The interest rates, though, then started to skyrocket, and they started changing the requirements for loans. So uh, I know somebody who was trying to get a loan for a car during that time, and they wanted to charge her something like 19 20% on a car oh, loan, uh, and she had good credit. And, you know, I mean, I mean, it was crazy during that time. But a lot of that was the result of them gaming the system to their benefit. Yeah, I remember... It was, I mean, Cor and I bought this house two years ago, but it was, the, I think, just repercussions of that time. Um, there was there were so many issues with us trying to uh, purchase our business, uh, we, mm-hmm. which we bought our business in 2012. But uh, they had started losing commercial, it had gotten a lot a lot, uh, you know, more relaxed, I think. Because mm-hmm. we got financing really with more ease, but... Our bank before that time, and my bank since I was in high school was our best, and they used to have the best customer service. Mm-hmm. And it's like literally, in hindsight, I kind of realized it's like, man, after that recession, is really when you guys stop or stop caring. It seemed like mm-hmm. because I remember we went in with substantial money down when we're going to buy the building we're at now. Which we sold, by the way, so you mm-hmm. won't be coming hang out there anymore. Okay, we, yeah. Just, other one will be twice as large. Tell me where. Yes. <laughs> we'll be there. You remember? You know where Back to Basics is at? I th- it's right I across so. the street from campus. So Yeah. Um, kind of Reasoner Lane, uh, like where Tina's Gymnastics and like uh, Ruby, oh, yeah, Ruby Tuesdays, yeah. all that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, twice as large. Good. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, we went in with money down there. I'm like, you know... Uh, if you put nineteen additional thousand dollars down, we might uh-huh. maybe could get something done. And we were just like, we banked here for this long. We have a lot of money down. In our opinion, I mean, we put ten thousand down. Uh-huh. But in in our opinion, it's like this is a lot. Like this is everything. This is all we have. We have we have good credit. I mean, I had a. 
I remember having a 760 and because Cora was younger and didn't have any credit mm-hmm. at the time we got married, like we couldn't do anything until she built her credit. That was mm-hmm. another thing about it. like just the delays, like by yeah. design. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it, you know, like if you look at Arvest and some of these banks and I'm just spitballing here, but it, 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 it that pattern that, oh, well, we need more down, those kinds of things uh, really come from the fact that they, you know, they, they give you the style of community, but they don't really have the substance of it because they're not beholden to the community anymore. They're beholden to shareholders. Uh, customer service is like a lip service. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, you know, it's like when Exxon talks about how green it is. I mean, it's it's all it's all to give the impression that they're doing something to, you know, sort of satiate and even mollify the public so that they don't get totally outraged but at the same time it's the one of the worst environmental uh, uh destroyers on the planet but, yeah but we're green you know we we, we care you know I, I, i'm trying to think if it was exxon that had leaked into the gulf the first time i went there and there were tar balls like i got out of the got when, out of the when gulf. did you go down the BP uh, this what oh that would have been bp because I, I was down for the they called us in i was doing stats for the bp spill i was working oh, as wow. a consultant on that and uh you know they were they were throwing money at his hand over fist uh but I, i'll tell you something when you see when you're out on a boat and you see the ocean burning it changes your life i mean it's it's crazy uh but i was in port for sean uh down in louisiana we're uh, mostly air monitoring and doing those kinds of things and uh that was bp but that was they were clearly at fault i i can say that now i guess but uh yeah you know man that was uh like that was the first time i'd been down to the gulf too yeah yeah oh tar balls cool the dead fish and the agents we missed out on some of that but uh it was like when i was down there it was like we're waiting for it to hit the Mm. coast type of a thing uh we were in pensacola yeah Uh, i think it was it was a little bit better there but but yeah it was was nasty everywhere i don't want to sugarcoat it yeah yeah well i mean that's uh everybody's becoming uh the the collective consciousness seems to be more aware of these issues would you say i mean uh you had that uh you had uh the 16 year old greta thunberg the other Mm -hmm. day which was met with a lot of mixed fanfare but yeah i don't know i just i'm like I feel guilty. I, I I agree with you, but I feel guilty. Well, uh, right. I, I think her outrage is what people are responding to. Yeah. But I think it's fair. She should be outraged. She should be. How dare you? Uh, because there is a kind of intergenerational tyranny that's going on that we don't pay attention to. And that is we're imposing taxes in the form of uh, just health consequences alone, much less the environmental degradation, et cetera. We're imposing that on generations who have no say in our political system. We're just forcing that down their throats. And so I get the outrage. I mean, I have a kid. He's not. I mean, you, you know my kid. Uh, uh, you know, I, I worry about the world that we're going to leave him, this sort of corporatist, environmental, environmentally damaged well and it's that that got enough it got me thinking too because i mean i was like with the outrage thing that was a little bit of a turnoff but it's like at what point do we deny you know everybody that's in this demographic that we're talking about honestly like non-economically viable people Mm -hmm. 
it, in our system because it's like, yeah, you got student loans, you got to get free and reduced, like whatever it is. All of these marginalized economic groups, I guess, would be a, a way to put it. But it's like, at what point do we allow their opinion to be participatory in in the narrative? Well, I think it all sh- always should be. I mean, that's the story that we tell if we hold true to American values. Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't say, "Give me your rich." And your blonde hair, blue eyed, on the you know out there in the Statue of Liberty, it says, "Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free." I mean, if we're truly oriented towards fairness and justice, they have to be part of the dialogue. And if they aren't, then that's I think we don't ask the question enough: What does that make us? What kind of people does that make us? Because, for instance, if you don't involve the poor in making decisions about poverty programs. Then all you're doing is you're 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 essentially engaging this sort of white affluent guilt, and you're never going to hit the target. I mean, there's stories uh, uh, analogs like uh, if you look at what happened with some of the charitable work in parts of Africa, Christian uh, groups would send over milk, powdered milk, and they can't process milk. Many are lactose intolerant. That's in part because of vitamin D absorption, et cetera. Uh, but how arrogant is it just to send that over because we know what's going to help you. This is what's going to help you. Out of touch. And and it doesn't help. Uh, 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 so I think if we're truly uh, – if we truly believe in those American values of justice and freedom and equality, then they have to be always part of the dialogue. They have to be included. Uh, my fear is that what we've done is we've traded – we're slowly trading um, – what would be more democratic toward more plutocratic so for instance we've gotten to the point now where it used to be one person one vote now it's one dollar one vote and that means bezos and buffett and gates they have way more votes than i have i saw bezos's uh yacht the last time i was in pensacola watching (laughs) panic it's the biggest thing i've ever seen yeah like stories high and you know they buy these luxury goods but they don't buy things that drive the economy like how many pillows can he really buy you know how many gallons of milk will he really buy Mm -hmm. you know those are the things that kind of drive the economy these these sort of more common purchases the yachts are just i I, I don't understand why somebody would even want something like that at least from my perspective yeah i I was saying i was like does he live on that full-time run amazon from that yacht Oh, you know, that's just, you know, it's just a measuring contest for for rich people. I mean, it's look at me. And remember that if you add up Bezos, Gates and Buffett, those three guys own more than the bottom half of the United States of America. So if we split the country exactly in half at that midpoint, they have more in assets. I just want to know how Buffett's able to drink so much Coke. Well, he's, like he, that that dude is unhealthy, but he is he is older and he's doing fine. Well, he makes the argument that uh, he drinks, he eats like an eight year old. That's what keeps him young. That's that's his argument. I don't know. I'm sure that's not working for me. Man. Yeah, I get no, weird no. digestive issues, all sorts of. Oh, stuff. no, I mean that's you know I'm I'm trying to cut back now and. <laughs> Yeah, but his that's one thing everybody always comments on, like yep. his diet. And, yep. and it's like, McDonald's, how does this guy do it? Every morning. Oh, wow. He gets McDonald's. And if the stock market's doing well, he gets a, like there's a, a upgrade to the meal plan. He'll get the upgrade. to He'll spend four bucks instead of three. The little, the hash brown. Yeah. The, he'll add the hash brown or something. I mean, that's, that's Buffett. Oh, man. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So on that token, um, should these individuals exist in society in general, Western liberal democratic society, uh, uh, billionaires? Should this has been a, a question that's been no, going around? Should question. billionaires exist? I mean, they do exist. I think they're a symptom of a bigger problem. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at other cultures and other societies, you have extraordinarily rich people, uh, but they also tend to have a broader safety net and they try to protect people. So if the question is, should they exist? You know, I don't know if I have an answer to that as much as I can say that the fact that we have so many is a problem because you got to figure for each one of these people, they're trapping money. They're not freeing it up. And so currency is supposed to be like the bloodstream of an economy, right? You're supposed to spend it. And as they capture it, what they're doing is they're restricting our ability to actually get access to this stuff. So if you look at income, for instance, one of the stats I saw recently was um, something to the tune of 80% of all available income every month is going to people like that in the top 1% to 10%. And then we're scrapping it out for 20%, the remainder of the country. That's a fierce competition. Right. And and we can't. We can't compete. That's the problem. And, you know, even if you read Smith and some of these others, the system we have now is different than the one that Smith was talking about. Uh, The the system that we have now is uh, really more like casinos in the way that it operates. So should they exist? House always wins type of a system. So should they exist? I don't know, but but the fact that they do exist is a problem, or the fact that there are so many of them. Yeah, that's uh, I forget uh, who was posing. Some somebody sort of cult personality was mm-hmm. posed that question a few weeks ago, and I was like, "This is symptomatic of a of a much larger problem." Like what you're saying, and right? I mean, it's it's you know what we're running into is the features of the capitalist model that we adopt. I know I sound like a big Marxist when I talk that way, but really, it's well, I, it, it, it's not. I'm I, I, not a Marxist, but the thing about Marx is he he actually had his finger on the pulse of what was wrong with capitalism. He was an excellent diagnostician. His solution is totally screwed up. I mean, don't get me wrong. But it was born out of what? But it was born out that's of the what industrial revolution and the poverty yeah. that he saw. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, he's, you know, he did monopolization, for instance. We're seeing post-2008 collapse, like you were talking about. We didn't get more banks. We got fewer banks because the bigger banks came in and gobbled them up. And that's how they become less beholden to people in their communities. Uh, they did, you know, now they're these huge corporate entities. Uh, the thing that's driving unemployment now that we aren't talking about that we should be is not immigration or undocumented aliens. That's 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 just an issue meant to get people to yell at each other. The big issue is automation, and that's a tendency within the model to push for greater and greater levels of automation because you save on your labor side you can destroy you can destroy unions you can do these things that allow corporations to save more money uh but you know the biggest one he kind of warns us about is control of the state by the wealthy and he says once that happens they will begin to tailor laws that suit their interest over the interest of the broader public an oligarchy 
in, in, in a, a sense or a plut- or yeah. plutonomy. I mean, and, and they recognize this. Citigroup put out that memo a few years ago where they were talking about, you know, the biggest barrier to plutonomy at this point is that we still have one person, one vote. But we're moving away from that. You know, at least that's my fear. What do you think? Uh, where does voting rights kind of come into this narrative something well i mean if you look at what happened with just the civil rights movement and the voting rights act that was i mean it's got a long and bloody and complicated history of just giving one segment of our society the right to vote and then if you go back to suffrage the suffragettes and you know universal yeah i was i was lecturing on uh Seneca Falls and uh, yeah. abolitionist movement today. Right. And so, you know, we've got a long history of trying to cut people out of political participation, which I think runs against our value system once again. And the problem we run into is that the political parties now seem to be trying to game the system in such a way that they disenfranchise people so that they can get a majority in any area. So that's gerrymandering, the issue with gerrymandering, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So if we go to voting rights, I think if we want a healthy democracy, everybody should vote. Everybody should be allowed to vote. I think it should be a national holiday. That's interesting. Everybody gets a day off. So that, because a lot of poor don't go and vote because they can't get the time off they can't afford the time off. Uh, But everybody gets the day off. You go down and you, you know, when you get your driver's license, you're registered to vote, and everybody sees it as a civic duty now. It's not an inconvenience. When it's an inconvenience, it privileges the wealthy. When it is our civic duty, I think we get the government we earn, we don't get the government we want. And so that's how we earn it back, is we participate in the system, at least while we can. Encur- yeah, and that encouraged participation would go a long way. So if you look at, they've rolled back some of the, the I, I mentioned the Voting Rights Act and the, you know, the Civil Rights Movement. They've already started trying in some states to scale that back. Uh, 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 so, you know, for instance, some people thought about bringing back poll testing or poll taxes and these kinds of things that are what do you think what do you think those arguments are rooted in well they're 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 rooted in uh kind of a a mindset that uh if we want to maintain control what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to keep poor people and young people from voting i mean that's the easiest way i could distill it down and so uh maintaining control for them becomes more important than doing the right thing and accepting the system for what it is which is everybody gets to vote everybody gets to participate and um so if you look at uh particularly minority communities there the the very fact that arkansas has a voter id law indicates that there is a racism in our that's been institutionalized that prevents certain people from voting because they simply don't have the appropriate level of id I mean, that's what. Yeah, they're really it's not convenient, and some yeah. of the rules on um, primary voting and just oh, well, you voted for this party, right? At yeah. this time, you can't change that. Next time, right? Some some of the steps and the I've seen a, just a survey from different states and how they this might be institutionalized in different ways in different states. Oh yeah, no, it's. Uh, I mean, it just it it it, it really bugs me that we aren't paying more attention to the fact that people are being systematically disenfranchised. Do, do you think that with what you're talking about is, does uh, voting require an age? I, th- I, I think the age is okay. I mean, you know, what is it now? It's what, 18, 18. To, to register to vote. I, I'm okay with that. Although 
going back to our earlier conversation, we still need to have a mindset that includes future generations whenever we make these large-scale policy decisions. Uh, uh, I, I think there is a certain danger in letting my nine-year-old vote. Well, I mean, it. Uh, I wonder if you could do something for lack of a poor, a poor analogy. Are you familiar with the three fifths compromise? Yeah, yeah. A horrible, horrible. Uh, low point. Right. I rant incessantly about it uh, when when it comes up. But it's like, what if we applied something like that to a non-racist? Like, hey, you know, kids ages thirteen to eighteen. Will receive uh, the, the, the vote. Let's say however many vote we we extrapolate some uh, right. data or a percentage from that. Well, th- I think if we had a better public education system that truly was universally available, and we beefed up the civic educational system, then we could start talking about different voting ages. But the reason it's eighteen is because that's the age of majority. That's when you're an adult, essentially. Uh, you know, I think of when you ask that question, I think of my nine-year-old and, you know, he's a bright kid and everything like that. But if we asked him to vote, what's he going to vote based on? It's impression. And, and yeah, I remember going to the fairgrounds when I was a kid and, like, doing a mock voting. Yeah, and he, he's just going to vote by what he hears me say at home. I mean, that's what he's going to do. Yeah, or, like, I like, I've never heard of these yeah, people. This, I like this name the best. Yeah, this candidate is pro-ice cream. So that's... <laughs> oh, know. man. Uh, so I think there is a little bit of a danger in you know the, the the age requirement right now is is important but you know if they had if there was a stronger civics education program and maybe we could hold votes nationwide in elementary schools and middle schools and even high schools and then look at the results of those and uh, even poll them on what they consider to be the most important issues and then include that into the policy process that might be a way to get their voice in that's something, uh, and honestly, it's that Greta Thunberg stuff that got yeah. me thinking about yeah. voting rights. And out the gate, I was like, I've been kind of back and forth on this idea of like, well, your brain's not fully developed until you're 23 to 25 years old. But then I realized like that doesn't even do it. I'm 32 and I'm learning more stuff than ever. Right. Right. It's just I think it's you're always not everybody, but uh, you're just it's been an upward and onward story for me. I've just kind of leveled up continually mm-hmm. now for people on that path. Uh, yeah. Like, but it's, I think people, what do you do with the people that aren't on that upward path or, or, uh, the uneducated or mm-hmm. it's just all these issues and voting rights is for marginalized groups. I'm all about it. And the only place I've ever been back and forth on it is the age thing. Mm-hmm. And, the, a, and, and developmentally speaking. And honestly, until you asked the question, I never really thought about it because I always think about these as more adult decisions. But, yeah, at the same time, they have to have some input. But I don't know how that would work. You know, not not reasonably because I think they think about different things because they are, for the most part, they're, they're covered by their parents. You know what I mean? I mean, they don't make those my kid does not make financial decisions for the household. Yeah. There was uh, I saw a funny meme. It's like, uh, about giving kids decisions or something. It's like, man, my, my, my 10 year old, you know, he's worried about a whole other, it's not even comparative. It's, it's, but at what point does it become? 
You know, at what point did we make that transition of consciousness? And right. I don't know. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I agree. I don't think it happens at 18. I mean, it certainly didn't for me. I was, you know, Mr. Fraternity, and I majored in beer for a long time when I was first, you know, I was okay in school, but I majored in parties, you know. I mean, I'm not sure that I would want me at 18 voting. <laughs> Much less some other body, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like <laughs> I would, kids could be that. That meme is that kids could be sociopaths trying to figure out long division. Yeah, yeah. Until yeah, they're, sure. you know, it's like I, yeah. I was like, man, that one hits home. Long division was hard when I was a kid. Right. But I know if I let my kid make all the financial decisions, we would have fish tanks in every room. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you know. I'm not sure that's uh. Now, as a parent, you try to, I, I mean, I can tell you that uh, I try to make my son more aware. And in many respects, when we talk about it at home, we, you know, I try to mute it a little bit because I don't want him to get in that echo chamber and sort of go to school and repeat some of the things that I say and get him in Dutch with a teacher or, or another student or another student's family. I mean, he's had enough trouble. He once mentioned um, that uh, he didn't believe in evolution. And for some reason, that set a lot of people off, you know, that, or not that he didn't believe in evolution. He believed in evolution and didn't believe that it was uh, divinely created, you know, which so, so just to correct the record there. But uh, 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 there were friends he lost over that. They said, well, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in evolution or you don't believe in creation, then we're not going to be friends with you. And so because he believed in evolution, but. You know, I had to ha- have a whole conversation with you about, buddy, it doesn't matter if you believe in evolution or not. It just happens. And so you're on the side of the facts. You're on the side of what we understand to be true. Uh, and people who would ostracize you for that, you know, you just got to learn to kind of dial it back if you want to be friends and kind of mute that. And so that's, I guess my concern is, as I'm thinking about it, as I talk about it, is I don't want him to echo me because in terms of the political spectrum, you can probably tell I'm hard left. I mean, I'm way out there on the left. I'm going to have to take notes on all this. I mean, Cora and I, when we, it's a real thing too. I mean, cause I have, Mm-hmm. I have some cry. I mean, I do not attend church. I would not uh, identify I with being a Christian. And saying that alone mm-hmm. uh, is controversial. Like, oh, yeah. we were Absolutely. in a group of people, and somebody asked me what I believe. And I was like, well, have you ever explored the idea that maybe Jesus, like Socrates, may not have been a real person? Yeah. And they were just like, whoa. And I was or, like, I'm not saying I believe that, but I'm saying I'm deeply exploring that topic right or, now. Or just count the number of messiahs that were around during Jesus's life. I mean, it, assuming he existed. I mean, I, you know, that those are the kinds of things we ask. And I've even gotten notes uh, from the school, and I, I don't blame them for this. But he said one of the things he wanted studying gifted and talented was evolution. And then Greek and Roman mythology, et cetera. I had to write a letter of permission for him to do that. And once again, I don't fault the teachers for doing this. What they're doing is they're covering themselves. But Is that our geography? Is that is that where we're at? I, I think that's part of it. And I grew up here. I mean, I, I grew up in Arkansas, but I left. And I lived on the left coast out in San Francisco. And, you know, uh, I've traveled around the country. I've even lived on the, on the East Coast for a short period of time. And eventually I came back. After graduate school and finishing the PhD, I came back, and I can tell you this is a totally different state than when I left. I was gone for about ten or fifteen years, and something happened where I think we, 
uh, we almost moved backwards. We regressed a little bit in our understandings of science. So, for instance, uh, we have to deal with the issue of uh, vaccines. And I had to have a whole conversation with him about how vaccines work and why we know they work and why it's important that you get vaccinated. Because some of his friends will bring up, well... I hear that we're not supposed to get vaccinated and it's, you know, it's against our religion or it's against our book, Christian beliefs or whatever, you know, um, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's strange to me that the state is so different than when I came back. Uh, I, I, and I, that's uh, man, I'm teaching Arkansas history now mm-hmm. and we're, do we just got through with progressive politics mm-hmm. and are going into the 45 to present era. Sure. And it's um, just going through the progressive era and how we were trying to deal with things or not deal with them mm-hmm. or keep them from being dealt with. It's uh, that we have an interesting history, but we are really anomalous to a lot of other states in our region or like I like to bring up just because it's like our only it's like well we're not quite in the deep south mm-hmm. I mean maybe the delta could be but uh, like I was listening to a De Bla- old De Black lecture the other day mm-hmm. and he was talking about how yeah there was slavery in northwest Arkansas and throughout the state but like the culture the life the world of northwest Arkansas and the Ozarks versus eastern Arkansas and the delta mm-hmm not apples to oranges it's not even the same and you get into some of those uh, deep south river states and uh, on the mississippi and Mm -hmm. that culture is is different and you even see it like uh we have a lot of different um like slavery in arkansas there's a lot of anomalous standouts it's like oh it's not like that in any other state not like saying it's good or bad or more no, positive. Know, it's a horrible saying. institution. Right. Um, but it's like, that's, it's interesting because I think we maybe make stereotypes about mm-hmm. some of that. It's the same in all of the, all of the Southern states. Yeah. No, I don't think it, I mean, there is a left component in Arkansas that's still alive and still vital. Um, it just, when I lived growing up, I remember that as having more of a voice and it was more reasoned. Uh, so, and I'm not talking about the woke left coasters. Um, I'm talking about, you know, people who believed that you play fair and you work hard to help others when you have, you know, that, that, that it's okay to say that racism is a bad thing and it's, it, we should treat it as if it's a bad cultural practice and it's a bad set of institutional practices you know but but that seems to be changing now too well i said uh man i love uh which just kind of reminds me of some trucker songs from Mm -hmm. the american band album yeah but i said that that we were talking about we've been talking about slavery all week and all last week uh but it's it's okay to say those things even if your dad or grandpa was an ardent racist yeah. and i think a lot of that is the the tiptoeing around and it's, it's taken me to be over 30 to to kind of cut ties with some of that of like yeah no nah, you raised you know i was raised this way or around this idea mm-hmm. or exposed to this idea that we don't associate they're different than a just saying it like that they the the marginalized group it's like that is still systemically taught uh, oh i know and, and and we run into it even once again with the kid you know it's it's and 
that I, I, I find it interesting that all those cultural battles, like my mother put it this way, uh, because she went to a, a, a big protest over the scaling back of abortion access. And she said, I can't believe that in my 70s I have to fight this battle again. And if you look at pictures of me, and I actually have these and I show them in my classes sometimes, when I was a kid, I still remember segregation in the state. Now, it was outlawed. You weren't supposed to do it. It was against the law. But I remember going to medical doctors or if you went into an emergency room or different kinds of facilities like that, they still had black waiting rooms. And you could not go into those. And our family, as a family, we were all just screw the man we would go in and we would sit in the black waiting rooms i mean we would we would actively protest these things so there's signs of me as a kid growing up in this state holding up signs black is beautiful and you know i, I come from a family of real hardcore leftist agitators in fact my dad used to say his one of his proudest moments was when he was surveilled by the fbi because of his activities but <laughs> Going back, that was a battle I remember fighting as a kid even, and my family was ardently opposed to any kind of racist ideology. And as we grew up, you could see kind of a shift where maybe this stuff is – maybe we're going to push this down. We know it's still there. It still sort of distills itself under the surface. But to come out as an openly avowed racist or Nazi or whatever, this was looked down upon. And it was clear that the public was responding and saying, we vote that out of our culture. Even though it's still there, we're going to vote that out. We don't want those ideas as having any viability. But then I came back and it's, wait a minute, we've regressed. You know, you see, well, now in particular, you see just just virulent sort of uh, open, unabashed kind of, we believe the white race is superior. And it's kind of like, wow i thought we'd already fought this battle i thought we were on the winning side and it was you know we were doing something it's it's just daunting it's that it's it's uh that there's a pattern to it Mm -hmm. almost that it just and if you look at it on a larger like uh, somebody brought this up we were talking about like international slave trade and stuff Mm -hmm. and why after the international slave trade is outlawed it's still a legal thing in the united states but it's you know it uh we were still like one of the only Western nations with our ideas that were propagating mm-hmm. that nation. I mean, Brazil and some other sure. people in our hemisphere, but it's just somebody brought up like, well, you know, it's been slavery everywhere forever. And I was like, that doesn't make and it, it right. well, yes, yes, they, they, yeah, <laughs> no. that we weren't, we weren't no. going to, but they were just saying like, cause I, we were talking about abolition. I was like, sure, sure. what sort of, cause I was like, here are the, I was like, it was enlightenment 1715, but in, in 1840, we're making these arguments right. to say abolitionists are stupid. What do you think those arguments are? You know? And it's like slavery's in the Bible, like just mm-hmm. the, the things that people were saying, and it was in the newspapers mm-hmm. and elsewhere. I can't and I brought up the point it's like well the black church used the same argument to abolish it mm-hmm. you know it's like yes slavery's in the bible and the the Israelites made it out of Egypt and that's what yeah, we're doing but, right now <laughs> you know uh, and uh, so it's it, it was interesting we were trying to talk about if any of the arguments the classroom discussion it had been repurposed by both sides in mm-hmm. a different direction sure but even to that abolition in the 1840s 50s whatever it is 
all of that into the slavery is an institution that existed in the ancient world in just the Mediterranean basin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ever since. Well, it's, it's the same kind of argument they use against uh, people who adopt those perspectives. They use it against almost everything. So slavery is just a natural condition for humans. That, and that's kind of what they're implying when they say it's always existed. It's always been there. And in fact, that that's wrong. I mean, <laughs> that's yes. basically wrong. Uh, they use the same argument uh, to, uh, to, to, to make the claims about, you know, all sorts of groups. It's just, I don't know. I, I, I have trouble getting my head around it, mostly because it so flies in the face of what is right and what is just and what we know to be just. So I've had students in class, if we're talking about slavery, who will say, well, you know, what if it's a kind slave owner? Because you hear these sort of parables, you know, there's this kind slave owner. What if it's Uncle Tom's who, cabin, man? Know, oh, he, you know, the slave owner was so kind and they educate their slaves and they get them decent medical care. And my response is typically more curse laden, but it's, you know, it's still slavery. The, the S- Sally Hemings is a great is abhorrent. Yeah. Well, and the, the we I use that same uh, because you're you familiar with Sally Hemings, Thomas yeah, Jefferson's yeah, slave yeah. mistress. Yeah, yeah. The one of the questions I pose every semester is: Is this rape? Mm-hmm. Does this person have a choice? Is it okay if this person loves Thomas Jefferson? Is it okay if Thomas Jefferson loves this person? And, and man, it gets everybody riled up. And I, yeah. I, I kind of enjoy it because I just play devil's advocate on it. But uh, it, it's the the opinions are definitely divided on whether whether or not it's okay. Which is, I don't think it's okay personally. No, it's a, it, it, she was a slave. <laughs> I, at no the end of the day, it's like you guys can say all whatever you want. She never had a choice. Therefore, right. to me, it is wrong. Right. And I, I, I just you know seeing these arguments rehashed and even seeing them play out at a national level. It, it really bothers me because I thought we were on the path not to fixing the problem. I mean, the problem still existed, but we were on the path towards having a real dialogue that would remedy things, that we would work towards you judge people by the character and their actions, not by what they look like, that that we were we were kind of to the point where we could have a real conversation at, like adults and say, this is wrong. We, we don't want... Uh, this rift in our country anymore and um, I I, I just once again it seems like we're regressing we're going back and I don't know if that is the death throes of those old ideologies I don't know if it's a resurgence I mean you know who knows like I would turn to historians more than I would turn to a sociologist on that question because the larger trend is historical but um, in our culture now the, well, the immigration, and I'm not trying to drag this out, but if you look at the issues over undocumented aliens uh, uh, and the way we treat them, I mean, we we live in a country now that has concentration camps. We just don't say it that way. But these are effectively concentration camps, and we justify it in the most ludicrous ways. Like, well, they shouldn't have come here illegally. Well, let's talk about why they come here 
And if you go back to the 80s, essentially, the, most of these countries in Central and South America defaulted on their debt to the World Bank, which caused them to adopt austerity measures because that's the way the system works. So the bigger system at a global level in capitalism, if you're borrowing from the World Bank and you default on your debt and you can't even make your interest payments, what typically would happen is, and I'm sure I, I'm I, thumbnail sketching a lot of this but uh, uh if you look at what they did they would force austerity which means you cut social spending you cut helping people out and you put money into infrastructure that's supposed to grow your economy so what that did was that created horrible conditions for all sorts of people in central and south america that opened the gates for these you know like if you see what happens in nicaragua with the, with the revolutions etc it, it creates a gap for the drug cartels to slip in. It Did you see the cartel in Mexico just last week, or mm -hmm. it was maybe it's two weeks now? They the Mexican government had taken El Chapo's son, mm -hmm. and they they got the Mexican government to give him back because they took all of these uh, government employees. They sh I forget what city it was in, but there were there was bombs going off everywhere. They shut mm -hmm. down roads, pulled out jeeps with fifty cows. This is all cartel. Yeah, no, it, I could. It was a war zone, right? And it, it, they are bad. <laughs> but we, in many respects, in our national policies, created the situations that allowed these gaps to occur that they fill. And, and so when you see people fleeing north from that kind of situation, a lot of times, if we want to know who caused that, we need to look at ourselves. And we don't. We ignore that. We ignore that part of the story. We just assume that they're, what was it, to quote the president, bad hombres you know they're rapists and criminals and that's not what's going on i mean what's going on is something that if you take a broader sort of approach and you understand how the the the, the world systems operate that we're driving in many respects the increase in this this sort of undocumented immigrant influx that we have plus where are the corporations in this i mean you know i as i've stated i'm sort of anti-corporate but uh, why aren't we locking up the Tyson executives, or the or the bankers that or we bailed bankers. out? You know, uh, but well, well, if you look at immigration in particular, and you look at people who are in the meatpacking industry or the food industry more more broadly, that's where these a lot of these undocumented aliens go to get work. That's a great yes. And so when like if you see these ice raids, a lot of times it's management calling in on their workers to clear them out so that they can get a new batch. I mean, that's that's ah. kind of the way they work. And so the question is, why aren't we holding these people accountable? Because yeah, I mean, if you have knowledge of that going on, you're culpable, right? I mean, you that's think. perfectly they logical. They advertise across the border in Spanish. I mean, they, they, you know, hey, here's some jobs. I did it, and, and you know, I don't want to sound too conspiratorial, but I mean, like New York Times and other groups have actually clearly documented some of this, where they say that uh, uh, if you look at what's going on, we never seem to ask the question: At what point do we hold these corporate entities accountable? Because the ice raid in, let's say, a meat manufacturing plant that arrests two hundred individuals, well, they had to have gotten employed somehow. Yeah. Somebody hired. What's the story? Yeah. Somebody hired them, and if they're breaking the federal law by being there, then somebody broke the federal law by hiring them and paying them money. To I be mean, there. I've observed that hole in the system since I was. I went to work at Walmart DC at like eighteen, nineteen years old, mm -hmm. and there were undocumented workers there. Mm -hmm. It was the first kind of 
time I'd experienced it because there was this one guy, his name is John Wayne. Mm-hmm. His real name is Luis, mm-hmm. I think. But yeah. <laughs> on his name badge, it said John Wayne. And uh, everybody kind of knew that he was, you know, not on the up and up or well as John Wayne paperwork was for right. the time. So, but uh, yeah, that's. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if we're going to be fair, then we need to lock up some CEOs. But we don't look to them. We don't even think about them. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's like a odd disconnect between yeah, the well, two. I mean, when you mentioned the uh, if you look at the banking collapse, uh, uh, if you go to that period two thousand seven to about two thousand ten, uh, I mean, those cats that were involved directly in creating the crisis were actually locked up. No, we locked a few people up, but they weren't directly related. It's like Bernie Madoff's. He was running a pyramid scheme, scheme, et cetera. A couple got caught for doing different kinds of fraud or embezzlement, but they were sort of ancillary. Tip of the iceberg. You know, and so the, so where's the chairman of Goldman Sachs right now? I mean, he's he's still sitting pretty. Uh, you know, the Jamie Diamond. Maybe we'll find out all of these people were on like that th- uh, list of 1,000 uh people associated with jeffrey epstein it would, be sweet, it would be sweet irony i mean odds are we won't find out if they were yeah i mean that's a, that's a real tragedy is you know we there's probably stuff that we just don't know about but if you you know when you look at it sociologically we did some of this is my political position that's creeping in but when you look at it more objectively there are clear indications that the wealthy work together to make sure they maintain their wealth. And there's probably a lot of stuff that we don't always hear about that goes on. Uh, so if you look at the, uh, well, just Enron, I'm not trying to drag this out, but if you look at some a corporation like Enron, Skilling, who promoted the mark-to-market accounting practice, which ultimately gets them into trouble. There's also uh, a series of cultural things that they had issues with. But uh, when you look at that guy, that guy goes to the pen, gets out, and he goes right back in, in this, uh, into energy. I mean, it, you know, like, like we don't – they aren't vilified the way we do the street dealer. And we don't understand and we don't contextualize the street dealer's choice, which is just as rational – I mean, if you've got nothing and no opportunities to make money except by dealing dope, the most rational choice is that you deal dope. You know, we we tend to treat those people as if they're horrible, evil criminals that need to be locked away forever. But people like Skilling, who are masters and captains of industry. And those people, well, getting out selling more dope again. They may, yeah. Yeah, Or getting out and going back into the energy business. Right. What's the difference? What's going to harm us more? I mean, it turns out that these white collar criminals actually hurt us more in terms of financial costs and even lives than these street level offenders. But we don't go after them with the same zeal. IRS even uh, officially uh, announced that uh, because they were held to task by. I think it was New York Times, but NPR did the story, uh, held them to task and said, why aren't you auditing rich people? And they said, quite frankly, we just don't have the money and the time to audit rich people, so we're going to audit poor people more. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, the institutions are starting to operate in such a way that they reinforce the pattern of wealth. And in the meantime, poor people who have common interests develop these ideologies like these racist ideologies, where the white Southern man actually has more in common with the African-American man 
than he does with Bill Gates. He has more in common economically, but if the conditions are created point. where they compete and they fight it out, the wealthy people can just sit back and wait for things to happen. That's a great point. I, there's this, I thought about it even how there's these two Middle Eastern students from Tech mm-hmm. that go to the gym. Yeah. I talk to them more than anybody right now. Yeah. At 20 years old, I might tell me everything about your culture, where you're from, what you eat. They're just interesting to talk to. And I identify more with them, even being somewhere else, just because, like, you're going to tech, you're poor, mm-hmm. I was poor, I went to tech, right. we're here in the same state, I'm teaching about your part of the world in my Civ one class all the time. You know, and it's like, I identify with them, I love talking to them. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't even know what they believe or really. I was like, "Are you Christian or Muslim?" It's not a question I've even really. I'm like, I don't. I don't really care because I'm not. I don't identify with Christian. Therefore, right. I could not. Why would I even be upset with you being yeah, a this or choice. that or the good other? Luck, good luck with it, right? I mean, but I identify with them, even if they were uh, the Islamic or, or what have you. Yeah, it's like I got more in common with them than than Bill Gates for sure. And it, and that's that's what I think America is filled with embarrassed millionaires. You know, they're millionaires, but they just don't have the money in the account just yet Mm -hmm. and so they live like they're always benefiting from a system that in many respects is designed what do we call it keeping up with the joneses or something like that yeah Yeah, somebody just brought that up yesterday i mean uh uh, way we put it in the strat class was i i won't it's got some curse words that but uh it's a it's It's a curse word friendly podcast okay okay so so. uh, we live in a culture where you buy shit you don't want for people that you just fucking hate you know that that's our culture now that you're buying things to impress others or to keep up with others so that you don't fall behind without paying attention to the fact that you may not even really need that purchase or it brings no value to your life right there's nothing that you get out of it other than you get some sort of uh the the more formal way we talk about it is we call it economies of esteem that you for instance a cup of starbucks coffee if you uh, I pick on students all the time when they show up with Starbucks and I'll say, well, I, th- I thought you didn't have money. Well, I don't, but you spent six bucks on a cup of coffee. Well, yeah, because, you know, I just had to get it on the way in. I said, well, wh- why couldn't you just have bought a pound for six bucks? And then you just make it at home with your water every day until you run out. Cause that's as much as a pound of Starbucks coffee at Kroger. And they don't pay attention to the fact that part of the reason they're buying the Starbucks is because it's Starbucks, and it becomes a status marker. It becomes a way for them to say, look, I can waste resources. But we're so programmed in the system not to recognize that we're we're engaging in wasteful resource expenditures, that that's what gives us esteem with others. Well, and where I've started to carry guilt about that. Like, I got this nice plastic bottle. The kombucha's great. It it does help my digestive health big time. But we got this glass bottle. We mm -hmm. got this plastic cap. And all the kombuchas in every grocery store, on in every warehouse, and all of that waste and garbage Mm -hmm. and trash and the cold brew I get in the the plastic cup or whatever. Yeah, and it doesn't get recycled either. I mean, that's – we're distracted from asking the more fundamental central questions like, uh, you know, does – is there a corporate interest in truly recycling? Uh, quite frequently, a lot of our recycled stuff that goes in the special cans does not actually get recycled. It just goes in the landfill as well. 
uh, uh, but as long as we live the illusion that it does, we're we're okay. As long as I live the illusion that when I buy something like an old navy shirt and it says old navy on it, I'm not really paying a markup to advertise their product. I'm wearing this shirt because it indicates to everybody else that I can keep up. I have resources that I can waste. So I am, in many respects, better than people who don't buy these products. We've got a real problem. I mean, we're, we're so alienated from who we are that we mediate all our relationships through our consumption. And we are oriented toward consuming constantly. I, I just, it, it really frightens me, once again, for my nine-year-old who's going to grow up in a world where we're still arguing about vaccines and whether or not the earth is round and or globe and whether or not, you know, racism is bad. And, you know, we're start arguing about these things. And the tendency now seems to be shifting more towards that hyperconsumption rather than going back to, do we really need it? Yeah. Is this really of use in my life? So I do that Marie Kondo thing all the time. I mean, does this bring me joy? Yeah. And if it doesn't. I've been able to get rid of a lot of stuff yeah. through that method, uh, particularly when it comes to things just like clothing, books, yeah, things. It's like, Absolutely. have I, you know, am I going to read this again? Or, man, I've had this shirt since junior high. It's a great shirt. One, th- I mean, one thing I did start doing with some of my old shirts, I picked out a bunch of my old martial arts shirts, and mm-hmm. I gave them to uh, one of our older kind of instructors that makes quilts. Mm, yeah, see that that's cool. Uh, so now it's like, man. I got that quilt that he made me that I'll probably cover my kid up with. Sure. That, you know, so it's like, but. And that kid will keep it for the rest of his or her life. I mean, he was like repurposing the joy mm-hmm. too. It's like, you know, these shirts, these 20 shirts don't bring me any more joy. Mm-hmm. But that time of life did. And now I've repurposed this nostalgic yeah. way or whatever. Uh, it's, uh, you know, so, it, but that, uh, the, the art of tidying up, of just like creating these sort of mental markers to let go. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I can get rid of this for this reason. And then I, I find if I have like two reinforcements, mm-hmm. then I can usually cut ties with it. It's a lot easier than it used to be. It's a practice. Yeah. Oh, and it's tough. I mean, because we're oriented to hoard and keep this stuff mostly because we feel we need it and we'll use it at some point. And then I think we confuse needs and wants. And that's part of what drives that. Uh, you know, uh, and I see it in my kid. You know, I need this toy. And it's right. Well, I need these Harry Potter yeah, Legos. But, okay. Buddy, I, I don't think you know what that word means. You know, need. I said, let's talk about what need means and what want means. Uh, but yeah. Uh, and you see it. I see it in the college students all the time. Uh-huh. You know, this tendency to, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. And uh, I don't fault them for it. They're trapped in a system that makes them do that. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, and I think that's part of our problem with social media and the esteem issues that are tied to social media and the depression that's tied to media. Because you're always missing out. You know, everybody's always got a better life than you, but it's all an illusion. In the same way that buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks is an illusion. But, you know, it's like, a, uh, you know, I identify more Taoist, Buddhist in my religious beliefs. And uh, uh, there's a famous story, and I don't want to take up too no, much. No, hey, uh, we, we can wrap up whenever uh, whenever you want. I got to go to the gym here in a bit, but okay. we're, uh, we're totally but, uh, good. There's a famous Buddhist story about a great Buddhist master dies. And uh, so he uh, uh, his acolytes are there, and there's one in particular that was his mentee, the, the one that was going to grow up to eventually become a great Buddhist 
uh, master himself crying under a tree and a couple of the monks come over and they say brother why do you cry and he says i cry because my master has died and the other one steps forward and says but brother death is an illusion and all of life is an illusion at which point the young acolyte under the tree crying says but this is the saddest illusion i've ever experienced and so the point being is these illusions take on a reality of their own and that we never recognize at least as a culture of consumption i think that's scary to me we never really truly understand the degree to which we buy into something that takes on a life of its own yeah and we we the reason it's scary to me is because we stop paying attention to the fact that we control all of this at any point in time we could create a society that was racially equal gender equality we could create a society that has universal health care because we truly value life we don't have the style of a culture of life we you know we we truly value life we could change our system to be more environmentally friendly we could do all of this we could get rid of student loans we could do all of this as long as we all sort of get on board and agree and so going back to the original question student loan question part of the reason i don't think bernie sanders is going to work is because we all live in this illusion that tells us that we have to do things a certain way and his idea is so radically different from that illusion that we live in considered too yeah they're too far apart right and so we lose control over that and that's scary to me because at any point in time we could change anything and make it a better place we could that's i mean that's that's a great great point of optimism because it's easy to talk about all this stuff and get super negative and bogged down and we can't fix it or just be so you know just kind of write it off well yeah it's a thing you know Mm -hmm. like what are we gonna do but man that's why honestly why i love sitting down having these types of conversations and i think they're a value one they're educational for me i get to sit down with a lot of smarter people in my mind or just different people that man shed light on something i hadn't thought about Mm -hmm. you know so but um man i appreciate you coming out hey no thanks for having me yeah uh yeah it's a nice little full circle because i remember uh I, I, I thought of this earlier when you were talking about uh, drinking beer or something, but I remember you making a remark in sociology years ago about being a schnapps or uh, was a Scotchman, an acquired yeah. taste. It is an acquired taste. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know why that analogy stuck out, but you were you were kind of talking about getting con- conditioned to something. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and uh, it stuck with me from from years ago yeah, but uh, yeah. i've i've used that the scotch yeah. is disgusting the first time you tried i remember drinking <laughs> it like i hadn't even had scotch that time i because i was like probably 19 years old when i first ran into you but i remember the first time i drank it rethink i was like oh okay but it'll be an acquired thing if i keep doing Just keep it. doing it and sooner or later you'll learn to talk about all the nuance yes 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 well man uh let's go ahead and wrap it up i, okay. I appreciate you coming out and well, uh, maybe we can uh, sit down again sometime yeah absolutely right. thanks man signing off